0: This is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, it is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. From my personal mobile studio, my 2006 Jetta Diesel TDI. As I make my way up to my office to spend a Friday with my folks. And today is Friday, May 8th. 2009 so if I say anything today that's date oriented and you're listening to this show in the future that's why it doesn't seem like it's in the right framing of time as always I want to remind you this show is one man's view that is another way of saying one man's opinion you are encouraged to disagree with me and you can do that by emailing me you can do that by um, commenting in the blog and you can even do that in the forum all I will say is if you disagree with me and it's an opinion disagree not a factual disagreement, I may come back and rebut you. Uh, I may rebut you forcefully, depending on what the disagreement's about. Doesn't mean I don't value your opinion. Just means I don't lay down and accept what other people say without responding to it. And that's what I encourage you to do in your life as well. Know what you believe, but also know why you believe it. Two people can disagree. Two people can have completely different viewpoints, and as long as both of them know why they believe what they believe, both of those viewpoints can be useful to furthering a lifestyle that lets you live the life you want if times get tough or even if they don't. So on that note, let's uh, get into today's show. Today's show, I believe, is 196th episode of the Survival Podcast, and we are going to talk about a variety of things today, but the main focus of the show is going to be on a basic understanding of permaculture systems. Before I do that, I have some house cleaning and I have some exciting stuff. Let's start out with the basic house cleaning. Uh, Number one, if you think you get more than 25 cents in value out of each edition of the Survival Podcast, consider joining the member support brigade and get exclusive content available only to members. Consider visiting the sponsors on our website. You will find them in the right column on our site. We have just added a new sponsor. who's kind of been around a while, but we just got the creative put together for his banner and got him up on the site and that is SOE Tactical Gear uh, John Willis and John has been very good to the show donating well over $1,000 worth of his equipment in fact I would say it's it's probably in the north side of $2,000 worth of his equipment uh, around Christmas time last year to support both Stockings for Soldiers and our listener appreciation contest so he is a good guy he has been supportive of the show long before we had thousands of listeners so please uh, give John some business today if you can. Uh, Moving on from there, we have our big bug out, camp out get together down near Goldway, Texas around Memorial Day weekend. Consider coming down and hanging out, eating some barbecue with us and shooting some targets. It's pretty much just going to be some good old boys spending a a weekend together and uh, you will be able to be home for Memorial Day Day itself to recover because it's a two day event on a three day weekend. Uh, We voted on it democratically and that was the one that Came up, come one, come all. You do not have to be part of Region Five to come to a Region Five event. Uh, Next, I would say uh, let's go on with the show. Let's just get into it. And uh, here's here's a couple things I want to talk about today. Uh, Number one, I want to let you know that uh, if you go to LouRockwell.com right now and click on Lou's podcast, that the uh, episode that you'll be looking at if you're listening to the show today on Friday uh, is me being interviewed by Lou. Rockwell. That is a huge honor for me. I really enjoyed being on his show. He's, he's uh, initiated a very friendly relationship with us, and it looks like we're going to be doing a lot of things going forward. As anybody that's listened to this show for any length of time would know, I am a big libertarian. Uh, that is how I view the word world politically, because I am fond of liberty, not because I want to change the government, so to speak, or uh, be active in any real political parties or anything. My line of thought is libertarian. And Lou is probably the greatest voice for libertarianism uh, in the world today, as far as I'm concerned. So I would encourage you, if you enjoy my show, listen to his show as well. And uh, it is it is a different show. It is Generally, he's bringing in people like Ron Paul, Gerald Salente, Peter Schiff, folks like that. Um, you may not agree with everything, but you probably don't agree with everything here. So give Lou's show a listen, and, ha- and I'll put a link to the show that I did there with him uh, in today's show notes, so you can have a listen to that. On libertarianism, I want to expand on something that happened yesterday. And I want to explain some things to folks here as well, especially the people that tell me not to explain myself. Number one, I will never stop explaining myself because it's important for me not that people continue to listen to my show, if, you know, try to, try to keep everybody on board, so to speak. I really don't care. Um, I, I value every listener, but I want the listeners that want to hear what's being said. On the other hand, I don't want people assuming something and turning away from valuable information. Because they don't understand what I mean, so I will always explain myself. I was also told yesterday not to bother to try explaining liberty to either wacky Democrats or conservative Republicans, because they both had their own problems, and neither one of them would understand liberty. And I told the person that said that to me, I don't need to be a jerk, but you have your head up your ass. And I think he has his head up his ass. And, and I don't say that to be mean or anything, but if that's the case, then liberty has nowhere to go. Because most people will define themselves today politically as left or right, conservative or liberal, Democrat or Republican. So if we're not going to explain liberty to those people, then just who the hell are we going to explain liberty to? So... That's why I explain things. Now, what, what I think brought this up was a discussion in the show notes from yesterday, and somebody came on and posted a cartoon. This cartoon showed some pets, house pets. And like, you know, the dog's eating his food out of the bowl and says, what have the humans in the house ever done for us? And there's a fish pointing out a filter in his fish tank saying, well, they say this is essential infrastructure, but do we really need it? You know, and the cat's getting petted on a lap. It says, you know, if the poor cats would work hard, they'd have rich families too. And the caption is, well, what if our pets were libertarians? This is how they would view the world. And his point was that libertarians will not acknowledge the government does anything right. This is my response. And it's important to me that we start to understand, if you are libertarian-minded, how to answer things like that. Because that's part of a larger objection. It's probably one of the primary objections to libertarianism. Just what the hell has has government done right, is what the libertarian will say. And the, uh, the proponent of government, even smaller government, will often say, well, you drive to work on roads every day, don't you? The government built those. You know, have you ever used a public building? Uh, How does the water get to your home? Is that public works that brings water to your home? What about utilities, etc.? And there's all these things. They'll say, look at the National Parkland. You're a hunter. You go hunting in National Parkland? You know, uh, you're you're supposed to be a libertarian. You say government doesn't do anything right. But look at all the things that you benefit from. And that would seem like a difficult objection to overcome. It is not a difficult objection to overcome. Here's how simple this is. Say, um... I went into your bank account, and I sucked out $50,000 of your money, and I did it somehow legally where you had no no recourse. There's absolutely nothing you can do to make me give your $50,000 back. Now, let's say I I go out and I buy you a car just like mine, a Jetta Diesel TDI. And... uh, that's, that car sells for right around $25,000. And then I very ceremoniously hand that car back to you. I give you your car, and I say, look, I'm a government program, and I've helped you now. You now have a car. Now, if there's nothing you can do, there's no way for you to get your money back, and under the program you're not, you're not permitted to sell the car, but I put the car in your driveway, and I hand you the keys, and I say, it's yours now. Are you going to drive it? Are you going to use it? And is it useful? Will it get you where you need to go? Is it possibly more fuel efficient at 44 miles to the gallon than what you're driving now? For some of you, is it a better car than what you have now? Was the government program successful? Well, the bureaucrat says, of course it was. Look, he has a car now. He has a new car. It's a great car. It works really well. Well, the problem is I've robbed you of your opportunity to make your own choice. You really had about four choices. One choice you had was, you could have bought my car for 25000 instead of $50,000. So you could have bought the same car you have now for half the money. Your other choice was, you could have gone out and spent $50,000 and bought a $50,000 luxury car, if that is what you indeed wanted with your free choice. Your third choice could have been, I want to buy a cheap car. I don't even want to spend twenty-five, let alone $50,000. I want to go buy a $3,000 beater, that's good enough for me, and I want to keep $47,000 of my money for something else. Your fourth choice was, maybe you didn't want a freaking car in the first place. Maybe you wanted to walk. Maybe you wanted a a motorcycle. But that program has stolen your opportunity to choose. And that cartoon, folks, we are not pets. I've said that before. That cartoon illustrated it for me. That's actually a great cartoon. Totally misses the mark from what the artist wanted. And I'll post a link to so you can take a look at it. But the artist is wanting to say, look at all the great things government does. And I say that cartoon illustrates perfectly human beings are not pets. We do not live in somebody's lap. We do not want free trips to the vet. We don't want to be fed out of a bowl. We have an ability ability to be logical, to think, and to reason. And we understand that some of the things the government has done are useful. Like the fact that I'm driving on a road that was built for government right now is useful. It doesn't mean it couldn't have been done more efficiently and for less money by the private sector. And I'm not even that big on not building roads, folks. I think that is one of the things the government actually should be in the business of doing. And if they would stay out of the other things they should not be in the business of doing, like getting involved in our lives. Maybe they could do a hell of a lot better building these roads, and it wouldn't take me two freaking hours to get home at night because of traffic. So there's my summation of that. I have ten minutes, so let's go into permaculture and shift gears. So let's start out just with kind of a basic, loose understanding. What the heck is permaculture? I mean, if you open up Microsoft Word right now and you type the word permaculture, you'll see it underlined with a little red squiggly line that says you've misspelled it. You haven't misspelled it. It's just a new word that hasn't been accepted into the uh, spell check, I guess, in Microsoft. Unless you've taught Microsoft to accept it. That's how new the concept is. Now it's not that new. It's actually ancient, but it's Term, it's uh, I believe it's about 25 years old, and as a mainstream understood term, something that people even talk about, it's very, very new. Now, what it really is is it's a combination of the words permanent and agriculture. And by a simplified definition, it's basically permanent agriculture. Now, I've given simplified, really simplified versions of the differences between agriculture and permaculture before. And it's because this is a new concept for me. I'm I'm learning as I'm going, and I'm learning as I'm doing with permaculture systems right now. So uh, if I'm wrong about anything today with this, it's because I just don't know yet. And I'm, I'm working on it just like you, trying to get there myself. But... What I've said in the past is you can pretty much think of agriculture as anything that you have to touch every year. And permaculture is things like trees and bushes and berries and shrubs that continue to grow and reproduce and come back every year over and over, including perennial vegetables like asparagus, for instance, or things like perennial ground cover like strawberries. That is true, and it's also too simplified. Because permaculture is really about the entire system. And we're going to talk about two major components of permaculture today. This is going to be a first in a series on permaculture to you know, introduce you to the overall concept in a way that I'll try to make it so it's not overwhelming. Because when you actually start looking at the science of permaculture, it's so diverse and it's so complex In its simplicity. And I know complex in its simplicity sounds confusing, but that's what it is. It's complex in its simplicity. Because you're emulating nature at a very, very high level. And there are many things that you have to worry about with a permaculture system to make it work the way you want it to, one of which is things like water harvesting. And I'm not going to really talk a lot about water harvesting today. That's probably going to be the next show that I do. But each one of these components when you start to look at them and if you go get a book on permaculture or you read some articles on permaculture you start to realize how involved it is you're like well this is a hell of a lot more involved than you know bolting four boards together and filling it up with soil and planting some plants and this is a hell of a lot more involved than a couple rain catch barrels and some fruit bushes and some trees so maybe this is too much for me to take on right now and then what you'll realize is that permaculture, like many things, is a lot about what do you want it to be and how much of it do you want. And if you set up kind of a micro system in a third of an acre in your backyard, it's just as much permaculture as the guy with 10 acres that builds a complete food forest. It's just he's doing more than you are. His is a larger project than yours. And that this system, if you understand it, you can adapt part of or all of the system to what you're doing. And in many small acreage areas, you would adapt only part of it. But by understanding all of it, you'll be able to choose what you adapt. And then the other side of this is you'll be able to compensate for what you don't have. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm about to go through the, what's called the seven layers of permaculture, which are the different plants. And the top layers of the canopy are large trees. Now, one of the things about large trees is it produces an awful lot of organic matter. And that produces an awful lot of material, especially with deciduous trees, which are trees where the leaves turn and fall off, that can be used for the production of mulch uh, throughout the year. and and as well as compost. So if you understand that that large tree layer is supposed to be there, but you don't really have room for a large tree layer, you know that one of the things that that large tree layer would provide you is leaves for composting and organic matter for composting. So then you can take and find another methodology of providing for what is lost. Or you know that there's shade that they provide, and they create these cool microclimates. And in that shade, certain other species of plants grow well, including things like fungi, and you can create an environment with what you have. And you can probably use in a backyard certain things that naturally, in a densely populated area, create microclimates. But you have to understand the entire system as it is designed to know what you're scaling back to. I hope that makes sense. So let's go through the seven layers of permaculture. I'll get the first three absolutely in the right order. I don't know if I'll get the second four in the right order. I do think I have them memorized, and I might have to pause the recorder to think for a second. But I'll get all seven of them out to you. They may not be in the, I might say, layer five is, and I might be wrong about which one it is. But it doesn't matter because you're going to get all seven. So here we go. Layer one is the canopy layer. These are your large trees. Uh, These are your huge trees, your, your big trees that grow 40 feet or more. Spread way out. And depending on how much land you have to work with, those trees can be all fruit and nut trees that produce something edible for humans. If you were using, let's say, a half acre suburban lot, you would probably, if you were really trying to maximize your food production with a system like this, you know, if you were going to plant four trees, they would probably all be trees that are going to produce something edible. Whereas if you had five acres in the mountains, then you might. Actually, just use the large tree canopy that's already there, create your edge at that point, and you might not even plant any large trees to produce food, or you might just plant a few of them because you have more space and you might have existing standing timber that can act as part of your canopy layer and you won't have to wait years and years for it to grow. So again, this is where you start to see the flexibility and the adaptability of the system. Your next layer is your low tree layer. Now, in most forest systems, they're not dwarf trees. They're trees that because they're laid out in a certain way based on the way that the sun flows and their solar exposure and their younger trees, shaded by older trees, they simply grow at a slower rate so they stay kind of a lower level closer to the edge of the forest right what you do to emulate nature and get things done quicker is you plant dwarf trees. So your lower level trees, your dwarf peaches, your dwarf apples, dwarf cherries, and, and maybe even things like dogwoods and just smaller species of trees. And with dogwoods, you could go in and there's actually dogwoods that have edible fruit. Or you could, maybe you're going to even plant some dwarf trees that don't really produce food for you. Or maybe you're going to plant some dwarf trees that produce food for wildlife. And that's the same even in your canopy layer. your canopy layer, you may plant uh, some locust trees. Or you may plant locust trees in your low tree level if you have enough space. And you may trim them to keep them smaller because locusts are great at putting nitrogen into the ground. And they provide a, you know, locust beans aren't the greatest thing for people to eat, but squirrels and deer really like them. So do turkey. So there's a balance there with providing for nature. Each of these layers that you're doing is about also attracting beneficial insects and other types of wildlife. The entire system is not designed to just produce a, a, an environment for man. It's designed to produce an environment for man and nature together. So you will have some things coming in and eating your food, but if you balance the system right, there will still be more for you in the end than if you did a standard agricultural layout. So moving on from your dwarf tree layer, you move into what's called the shrub layer. and These are generally all your perennial shrubs, your things that come back year after year and produce fruits and sometimes nuts and sometimes berries. These would be things like raspberries, blackberries, blueberries. Uh, There's actually uh, shrubs that produce cherries, shrub cherries, uh, anything like that at that shrub layer. And again, not necessarily everything is going to be producing food for you. Most permaculture experts will tell you to stick to as much native plants as you can because your native plants are going to be better adapted to your environment and less likely to become invasive species. But they'll also tell you there's a place for exotics. And to me, this this layer here, the shrub layer, is a great place to start looking at putting in some of the exotics that have been proven to be effective in your area and are not considered dangerously invasive species. Some of the things that you might look at are... Uh, um... The goji uh, berries, gooseberries, sea buckthorn. A lot of these things are available from rain tree nursery. And if you get the rain tree nursery catalog, which you can get for free online, um, and go through it, you'll find all types of interesting shrubs and bushes. And this will bring a tremendous amount of diversity to your permaculture system. Even in a relatively small backyard, it's it's quite reasonable to believe that you could have six to eight different shrubs uh, varieties in your uh, shrub layer of your permaculture. System, And that brings in not just diversity in what it produces for you, but it brings in diversity in its ability to attract beneficial uh, insects, to repel pests, to cooperatively work together, to provide different uh, things for composting, different things to shade your soil, different little microclimates and microenvironments. Now moving on from the shrub layer, uh, this is where I may get some things out of order, but another layer that you need to address and, and take care of is what's called the rhizomal layer or the rhizome layer. Rhizomes are any of actually I know what the next layer is. We're going to skip rhizomes for a second. It's the herbaceous layer. The herbaceous layer is all everything that doesn't really fit into any other layer that I'm going to talk about today is your herbaceous herbaceous layer. It will be just about all of your annual vegetables if you choose to grow annual vegetables as part of your permaculture system. So, you know, your tomatoes, your peppers, your eggplants, your things like that. It is also actual herbs, basils, parsley, uh, chicory, comfrey, all the different herbs that you would grow uh, would be part of the herbaceous layer. Just about any plant that's not a shrub and not a vine or a root vegetable and not a tree herbaceous, and those you want to plant along your edges. Kind of intermingling with this, then you move into your rhizomal layer. Now your rhizomal layer is anything that's going to produce a tuber or a root that is good for human use or good for animal use. So human use, you know, maybe potatoes, animal use, maybe if you have ponds as part of your system, duck potatoes. Uh, Jerusalem artichokes uh there's there, and there's a tremendous number of tuber uh type vegetables that are out there and available again um, seed savers exchange they have a new uh it's not new it's ancient actually and it's it's called like it's something with an O. I can't remember the name of it right now, folks, but it's a pretty cool-looking plant that produces these little mini potato-looking things, but the plant itself looks like clover, and I actually believe it is a nitrogen fixer. It's like ochre or something like that. And you know, I'll put a link to it so you can uh, get some information about that plant. Anything that produces those tubers is part of that rhizomial layer. Now, kind of adding on to that, then, you get into your climbers, your vertical layer. Uh, which would be anything that, just like it sounds, climbs. And these can be planted on structures and in around the areas kind of further out in the edge, or the ones that are a bit shade tolerant can actually be planted back and allowed to climb up trees. Or if you have part of your canopy layer kind of on the edge, where you have a tree that still gets a lot of solar exposure on one side, people will actually do things like they'll plant runner beans that actually run straight up trees. And some of the runner beans will grow if they're given the space to do it 20 or 30 feet long for one vine and you'll have runner beans way up in the canopies of the trees and you'll say well what good are those to me well they're not good to you you have the beans that you can pick, the ones that you can are left for the wildlife and then the entire system of this runner beans, it's a legume is fixing nitrogen in the soil, maybe it's doing that in concert with locust trees that are also fixing nitrogen in the soil and all of this diversity, if you get enough diversity, you almost don't even have to worry about what fixes nitrogen and what provides this and what provides that because if you get enough diversity it will kind of start to happen itself especially if you compound it with this layering effect so That gives us six layers. So what's our seventh layer? Seventh layer is is the the cover layer, the ground cover layer. So just like it sounds, this is any plant that spreads horizontally on the ground and actually covers the ground. Uh, These would be things like clovers, and again, it's a legume, so it will produce uh, nitrogen. It's perennial. It comes back year after year and continues to nitrify soil. From a standpoint of something edible and actually, in my opinion, highly delicious, a lot of strawberry species spread out produce a complete carpet of ground cover, yet they also produce strawberries. So that's that's your seven-layer system, and if you build a seven-layer permaculture system anywhere... A lot of things will take care of themselves. It doesn't mean you don't have to touch it. It doesn't mean you don't have to do anything. It doesn't mean you don't have to address other things. There's a lot of pruning and trimming and mulching in a well-run permaculture system. But the longer it's in place, the less work that you have to do. And eventually you get to a point where your job as a gardener stops being to get things to grow, and it becomes to keep things where they are. So you want your dwarf tree layer to be pruned and trimmed so that it doesn't become part of the canopy system. Because even a lot of dwarf trees give enough time and space and energy. Even on dwarf rootstock, sometimes they'll grow a lot larger than you might want them. You don't want your shrubs to grow out of control, so you're trimming and pruning your shrubs. And you do a little bit every day or a little bit every week to keep the system where it is. And then as far as your annual plantings and your annual vegetables and your annual herbs and stuff like that, you're planting them at the right times of the year and you're taking them in to harvest at other times of the year. And the thing that you're doing throughout this is you're taking every single speck of organic matter that comes out of there that you don't eat, and if you don't eat it, it either gets shredded up and thrown back on the ground as compost or, uh, as mulch, or it gets composted. Those are the only two things you're doing. And then there's a lot of other things that you'll be doing. And if you're familiar with permaculture, you might be thinking, well, you know, talk about using comfrey uh, to make liquid plant manure and talk about it. And I'm not going to do that today because uh, I'm going to keep this a very simplified overview today. And then we'll come back, and we're going to build on this episode. So we'll go to those levels and layers of water hard. Harvesting and specific plantings and companion plantings kind of as the next phase. Because the other thing that I want to cover for you today is what's called zones. And this is the part where I think people confuse things. They take zones and layers, and they sound similar. So when they're talking about zones, they're actually talking about layers. When they're talking about layers, they're actually talking about zones. Or they don't really understand it, and they read some information on permaculture, and it seems confusing because the author's talking about zoning, and they're thinking layer, and they don't really understand what's going on and where the disconnect is. So zones are a lot less, how do I put this, Defined than uh, layers. Uh, Hold on, folks, I got a cop issue here. But we had three cop cars backed up, folks, and eight cars involved in one wreck. So that was an interesting little thing I had to get by. Uh, But I'm back now. So the zones are a lot less defined. Than your your layers. So your layer is pretty clear what a canopy versus a dwarf tree is and how that steps down as part of the system toward the edge of the forest system. Zones are a lot more for the individual and how to think and they plan their layout. And the zones are simply a horizontal layout, with zone one being as close to the human habitation part as possible. So your zone one is when you open your back door and walk out into your back. You're in zone one, or depending on how you design your layout in your house, it might be when you open your front door and walk out in your front yard, you might be in zone one or the side yard. But you get the point zone one is very close to human habitation. So, a lot of people, what they do is they take their garden, their vegetable garden, they put it way out in the back, you know, of the yard, way around the corner where it's because they consider it to be unattractive and they want it way out of sight. Out of sight, the problem with out of sight is out of mind. So you don't tend your gardens as often as you should. So if you bring your garden close to the home, and by the way, I think square foot gardening for your vegetables works beautifully with this, or you can do it just typical in-ground or however you want to, but if you bring your vegetable garden very close to your home in Zone 1, if you think about it, that's where all your annuals that need regular upkeep and all, all those types of things, and regular harvest, and need to be kept an eye on, watched out for the most pest abuse. So since they're close to your home, they become part of the beauty of your system, and you pay attention to them, and you use it more, and you know, oh, that's ready to pick, and you pick that cucumber today, and slice it up, and make it part of your salad tonight, and you're eating food that's maybe been in the, you know, just been harvested 30 minutes ago, and it's. Oh, I'm gonna have to um, edit a word there, folks, and I'm not gonna edit the entire thing because I want you guys to know what just happened. That was interesting. Traffic in front of me stopped, and one of these government trucks that uh, are there to help us is running down the shoulder. So I stopped, a typical slow stop. A guy locked the brakes with two vehicles back behind me, ran up on the side of the uh, median to avoid hitting the uh, helpful government truck. And uh, he's okay, and uh, he's gone on, but I got my heart in my throat a little bit there because I thought I was just about to get crammed in the back and be part of another eight-car pileup. But... uh, I uh I've escaped that so give me a second to compose myself here. All right, this is live guerrilla podcasting, folks. It might not be live when you listen to it, but it's live when I do it. It's on the road with all the dangers that go with it. So, zone two, zone one, of course, again, it's very close to your home. It's where your vegetables are and things like that. As you go through your zones, you're pushing back toward the canopy. So, zone two, you start to move into your edge with your, uh, you know, your, your kind of your, your climbing layer, your rhizome layer, anything that's a little bit higher, your shrubs, and you just keep moving your zones back. Zone four is kind of the canopy layer that, you're, that you've are that you planted and you're caring for, and that you continue to prune and work and do interplantings around your large fruit trees, your large nut trees, and maybe your large trees that are just there for wildlife or for part, being part of the ecosystem as nitrogen fixers or what have you. Zone five, in a complete, total permaculture system where you have the ability to do it, is actually true forest it's unfettered forest that you don't touch and you allow it to go completely wild so those are your zones and again they're a lot less defined than your layers and i know if you're like me when you start hearing the layering effect let's go back through a few things and go well certain things are they are they layer this or are they layer that let's look at something like squash okay a vine squash it's allowed to grow on the ground, is it ground cover, or is it herbaceous? Well, the answer is it's both. And that's where we can't start to overthink things like nature. Nature's a pretty simple thing, and that's why I said it's, it's it's complex in its simplicity. Uh, it doesn't really matter. All that matters is you understand what is the purpose of herbaceous, and what is the purpose of ground cover. Well, the purpose of herbaceous is for the plant itself that it produces in any fruit or vegetable that it produces so from that standpoint squash has a squash or a squash blossom that's also edible but the purpose of ground cover is to aid as a natural form of mulch that continues to grow and expand and helps to keep the soil at the right temperature and keeps it moist and provides another little microclimate for critters. We'll squash those both of those so for 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 all intents and purposes it is both. You'll probably use it more as part of your herbaceous layer but understanding its ground cover capability instead of just having squash in your garden you may find a nice little sunny patch uh, in your edge area that's not filled in with shrubs or what have you yet and it might be a great place if you have a nice big piece of land to plant some squash that grows in that capacity and get the effect out of it as ground cover and not confine it just to a space in the garden and by spreading things out and making them part of this intermingling ecosystem you're going to get a lot more protection and a lot more support uh, from the things around let the plants get more support from the other plants and the other environmental things that are around them. So what I want to encourage you to do from here is to start learning more about permaculture systems yourself, and then start to look at whatever land it is you have to work with. And I have to be honest, this is one of those things, if you have just a patio on the back of an apartment... Real permaculture is going to be tough, but you can probably still do certain things to harvest water and do some companion planting and get some things to grow where you, you might not think they would, um, but it's going to be tough. But if you have even a little plot of land, you can probably recreate some portion of this. So by understanding the layering system, maybe you don't even have enough room for dwarf trees. You have a real little, little tiny plot. where well, you can probably still do shrub, herbaceous, rhizomal, okay, uh, ground cover and climbing. You can probably still do those things. They're they're probably still very effective ways to make those layers work out for you if you understand them. So start to look at how you can get them to work in your little plot of land. Because if you build a good permaculture system, it won't produce more corn than agriculture can. There's no way that you can produce more just corn than Plowing the field out and and planting corn in rows or in blocks. Because obviously you're using all of the land to grow corn instead of a small piece of it. But you can absolutely always outproduce total production of food with a permaculture system than any agriculture-based soil system can, even um, from a standpoint of if you are to plant a lot of things that aren't edible. It, it, you could still outproduce. So, you know, on a large plot of land, you might pr- pr- plant some black locusts, again, for the wildlife and for their nitrogen fixing. You might plant a stand of, of, uh, of a uh, shrub layer. There's really a, a grouping of shrubs that are nothing but to attract butterflies and uh, ladybugs and other beneficial insects. And the person that's looking for maximum production may laugh at you and say, well, look, all of this space you're taking up with plants that don't produce anything edible. The ecosystem as a whole, given a couple, years to work and develop and be encouraged by you will outproduce the blocked out square of land in a straight up agricultural system and it's a lot more um, repetitive as far as how long it produces, more of a legacy so as a survivalist we're not practicing, and I always say this, you know, and I don't mean to offend any of us environmental minded, but we're not doing permaculture to save the whales, the manatees, and the polar bears, we're doing permaculture to be part of our lifestyle so that we can work in concert with nature to provide for ourselves. There is a little bit of a selfishness here. And as a survivalist, and as somebody who wants to hand out a legacy to a family, permaculture is a great way to do that. And I think on that note, I'm going to go ahead and uh, wrap up the show today. And I'll encourage you to start thinking about ways that you can harvest water beyond just putting a rain barrel next to the side of the downspout of your house. There's some cool ways that you can do that. That probably will not be Monday's show, but it's something we're going to talk about next week. This has been Jack Spirica with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough wonder, or even if they don't. You can, you can scream and you can holler it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent.